We started in hard times to bring us all in. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power's premier weekly infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm the editor-at-large of Public Power Underground, an honorary member of the Power Department and the Public Power Council's Office Administrator, Karen Heim. I'm the voice of the underground, Northwest Public Power's Ron Burgundy, today's co-host and economic development manager for Klatskin IPUD, Brian Fawcett. I'm Ian Bledsoe, co-star of Public Power Underground, Genesis Apprentices, and Klatskin IPUD's Power Analyst. And this is Luigi Gine, the data specialist for Klatskin IPUD and the producer for today's episode of Public Power Underground. All right. And today we are rejoined by Dan Catchpole, a journalist, associate editor, blue checkmark on Twitter, and today's podcast ambassador from News Data's Clearing Up. Great to have you back, Dan. Hey, thanks to, for having me. Great to be here. Looking for looking forward to another exciting week. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to it. Uh, this is Season 3, Episode 9, Leading Innovation Week, pre- presented by ESG. Today's episode is brought to you by the good folks at Efficiency Services Group. The folks at ESG are electric utility enthusiasts, like us, and we appreciate their, appreciate their help in making this show possible. ESG specializes in working with electric utilities to develop real solutions to meet their specific needs. What kind of solutions, you might ask? How about direct install programs, design and implementation of your energy efficiency program, income qualified programs, and even utility staff training by the legend himself, Mark Gosfiner. As a bonus, the good folks at ESG are well-versed in BPA and California public benefit programs. So if you're looking for a true utility partner to help with programs like these and more, learn about the ESG story at at efficiencyservicesgroup.com. That's efficiencyservicesgroup.com. They're a returning sponsor of Public Power Underground, and they're electric utility enthusiasts like us. And they came back even though Paul uh, did a mishmash of a (laughs) promo last week. So... Brian, high five, virtual high five on that one. You got the pronunciations right? Yes. So, good job. All right, well, thanks, Brian, uh, and thanks, ESG. Today on the show, we're getting an update on Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports. Uh, Paul talks to Ellen Groves from Northwest Requirements Utilities about blockchain technologies. Matt Shretnig and Paul interview Scott Coe, Emerald PUD's general manager and a Northwest Public Power celebrity, about how to effectively lead with innovation. We cover more public power and public power adjacent news in Public Power Desktop. And lastly, we TLDR our way through some headlines we didn't get to on Public Power Desktop in a segment we're calling Phase to Phase this week. So, um, well, we're going to start this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports, with Ian reporting. Go ahead, Ian. All right, this is Aaron Reports with Ian Reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest Power Market Indicators for November 15th, 2021. I'm Ian Bledsoe, and I've got your market update for the week. October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2022 are currently forecast to be 93% of normal, and April to September is at 95. Outflow at the Dalles peaked over the past week at 144.6 kcfs on November 10th at 7 a.m. Day-ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday, November 14th, was 1286, and peak outflow this past week happened on November 10th at 1800 hours when it reached 127.7 kcfs. Spot market power in the northwest for delivery November 15th is at 36.75 with gas at 374 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $10.61 and a heat rate of 9800. 
In term markets, balance a month for mid C is now at $50.20 per megawatt hour. Mid C power for December 21st is at 71, down from $88 a week ago. December gas at Sumas is trading at 569, translating to a heat rate of 12,500. Taking a look at fish counts at Bonneville Dam, 1,566 coho and 87 Chinook passed through yesterday. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority, peak load this past week was 7,497 on November 9th at 1755. During load's peak, hydro generation was at 8,526. Wind gen was at 1,900. Conventional units were at 1,100. And nuclear was at 1,150. All units in megawatts. And so for the August through September, August, September, October period sits at negative 0.7 Oceanic Nino index. The multivariate ENSO index for September to October is negative 1.47, and the SST consolidated Nino forecast indicates that we're likely to remain in La Nina through spring 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6 to 10-day outlook has temp near normal for the northern part of the region and slightly above normal for the south. Precipitation is expected to be below normal in the southern part of the region and slightly below normal in the north. Their 30-day and 90-day reports indicate temperatures in the normal range and a chance of above-average precipitation. Special thanks to Anstrogy for letting us use their dashboards for annual reports and to Luigi for collecting and compiling the data. That's all we got for this update. So, Ian, would you, uh, it seemed like it was pretty warm this last week. Would you say that wiped out any snowpack we may have already accumulated with the rain? I haven't looked at it today, but uh, I don't think the western Cascades, both in Washington and Oregon, I don't think have any snow. Um, and I don't think Canada was impacted that much by the warmer than normal weather. Well, that's good. That's what I was going to say, Brian. Uh, I think I just read that above 5,000 feet, at least at Mount Hood, there's not a lot of snow. But given the rain that we're currently getting and the storm that's currently coming through, at least Portland, uh, it's supposed to jump back up. So I'm excited for us to start uh, reporting on that. All right. Uh, well, next up is our walkthrough of uh, public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. So Luigi, hit that typewriter and take it away, Dan. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Karen. Um, so I don't know about the rest of you, but when the pandemic hit, my social media feed suddenly went to like all my friends learning to bake and learning French or whatever. Um, they had much. They have many few children. Fewer. They have fewer children than I do. But uh, turns out all that cooking, uh, also like cleaning and just being at home in the kitchen, uh, mostly cooking. Uh, was the main driver behind the rise in residential energy consumption during the pandemic. This is according to uh, a new study published recently by the Northwest Energy Efficiency Alliance. Uh, it's their long-term, longitudinal, long-term study looking at in-use uh, load research where they are in a few hundred homes and they're expanding to some businesses right now, right now they're only in eight but they're expanding to I think going to be like 100 200 businesses across the northwest but uh, they got in they set it up right before the pandemic hit so they're in I forget exactly like 200 homes so they were able to track granular like by outlet 15 minute interval intervals and turns out that uh, kitchen appliances, laundry, and water heaters were the main drivers. Um, so yeah, being at home, cooking, homeschooling, whatnot, 
that's what was uh, causing everyone's energy consumption to push up. It was not heating, though. That was the big surprise, that uh, heating actually had very little marginal effect on energy consumption. And uh, the study was looking at a one-year period at, from the beginning of the pandemic. So covering uh, cold periods and warm periods, not seeing a lot of consumption from higher heating or cooling needs. Uh, so that's what I got. Uh, that, that actually, if you want to read more, you can go read the story by me. <laughs> by me? I don't know who wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, in the script here, it says, you should read all articles by me every week. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that Luigi put that in there, so thank you. Because uh, thanks to Luigi for summarizing the article. For the underground, uh, and also thank you for sneaking in a my own self-serving <laughs> plug. What <laughs> Dan? I think it's really weird that bathing and washing of clothes is up during the pandemic. It's, it's up. I, it's up during. Yeah, the I daytime. hadn't thought about that. So it's like yeah. people are home and multitasking. Yeah. But also, they're not going out. I mean, I like this is how I always dress. So I, I, I'm always getting changed but that's a good point i mean it was a running joke right everyone's walking around like without pants on and like one t-shirt so your laundry load should be less doing more laundry right yeah I'm, i mean i don't know i'll have to get back i'll go back to nea with that and see if they can measure that exactly it was just all shirt loads i don't know uh yeah, were you taking? Were you surveying what people were wearing? I mean, I'm not gonna lie. This is NEA. Uh, what are you wearing right now? I I have enjoyed being at home. I know all the class tonight people. You guys are back in the office, but and currently, if you're watching, you can see that I'm in the PPC office. But 90% of the time, I'm at my house, and uh, it is nice to multitask and not have to worry about that stuff when the little kid goes to bed. So. So Karen, I have a question for you I'm based ready. on this article and. Yes and the fact that you're at home 90% of the mm -hmm. time. Previous to the pandemic and now, has your thermostat changed at all? Or did it just stay at like, do you just leave it at say 68 or 70? No, it just stayed regardless? where it was. I mean, I have a pretty small house, so it's efficient anyways. Um, but no, it just stayed where it was. I wasn't like 72 all the time, all the time. <laughs> it was not my setting, so so I definitely- As an energy of- Go ahead. Yeah, I was just, as an energy efficiency, uh, person I was just it kind of brings to mind the whole behavioral energy efficiency aspect uh, associated with heating and I think it is this probably shows that most folks don't change their thermostat for the times when they are not home and for me that sounds like an opportunity <laughs> well and well I guess for the winter but this covered I forget when this uh, March through yeah the summer but then all the way up yeah. through mid-november uh, it didn't cover you know we didn't have no, oh, it through, yes, the end went through January. We we didn't yeah. we had some cold <clears throat> spells, like but not like really really cold spells. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to call you out. I, oh, was, no, I, I, I didn't. No, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, clearly Dan is at home too, so we could ask him about it. But okay, we will move on. <laughs> Let's call uh, him out. <laughs> uh, Luigi hit that typewriter, and then Brian, you're going to be up next. <laughs> All right, The Underground's own Paul Dockery and Ellen Groves, NRU's resource analyst, recorded a conversation about their limited knowledge of blockchain, non-fungible tokens, proof-of-stake, proof-of-work, and permission-based shared ledger techniques that could be used to enhance the way customers could interact with the grid. Paul also opens a pack of NFTs from NBA Top Shot, and they brainstorm possible Public Power Underground NFTs. Hey, Ellen, welcome to Public Power Underground. 
Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. I am very excited to have you. Um, you got you got recommended. You got, uh, I don't know, sacrificed by our mutual friend, Megan Stratman, a, a best friend, a super friend of the underground. So That's thank great. you, Megan, for connecting this, making this happen. Megan is sunshine and unicorns. Sunshine and unicorns. That's yes, a great description is. of Megan. Um, so I went back, I've been listening through some old DER task force podcasts. Um, it's a podcast I actually very much enjoy. Um, and they had one on blockchain for DERS and yeah, I, I find blockchain like an interesting, I think there's innovation there. Uh, and they talked a lot about how you could use some of these technologies in the energy space, especially for distributed energy resources, but there's also other uses within, uh, within it. I don't know much about blockchain or how it works. It's still opaque to me. So I thought, you know what? We can have a special research specialist here. Maybe, Ellen, you can dive in and tell me a little bit. While you do, one of my favorite uses of the blockchain, I guess, is non-fungible tokens and specifically NBA Top Shot. So I, for all those podcast listeners, am going to go open some NBA Top Shot packet. So if you want some special content, you can come see on YouTube me opening some NBA Top Shot while Ellen describe what you know about the blockchain. Okay. Let's go for I, it. Well, the blockchain concept is new to me. And so I have, uh, my research has left me with more questions than answers. I love it. Uh, the, my basic understanding of it is that information is encoded in a block. And then uh, that the next block in the chain will take sort of a copy of the previous block and then move on to the next block and so on and so forth. So it's um, able to secure information in a more isolated form. And the more I researched on blockchain, the more, I mean, I got, I, I obviously had more information about blockchains, but I, my, my question still hasn't been answered of how exactly is this relevant to the energy industry and how exactly could it help change it? And the, the one answer that I feel like I, I got back over and over again was that this is basically going to be a way that utilities and, well, all the microgrids basically can buy and sell energy, um, specifically renewable energy credits amongst each other. But I think that this is the bigger problem here to solve is antiquated system meets rapid growth technology. That, that this, is good insight here. I like this. Go, 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 go deeper. It is, this is, I mean, this is the problem with a lot of industries, right? And so like this is the, the idea is that people, um, you know, people who get really uh, excited about their solar panels or they're, they're buying this like renewable energy and they, and they really want it to work. And these are people who are already well integrated into the technology sector. And so they have like, there's a whole neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York that is trading energy. 500 people are on this it's on an app and they're trading energy that they've produced on their own and they're you know this isolated little subset of the population because like at, on a regulatory level i think that getting to a point where the blockchain is actually relevant to our industry in a way that makes an impact i think we're probably a decade out <laughs> yeah i think we probably are a decade out and and part of like what i found interesting about the dirt task force is uh podcast was they were talking about sometimes you just need to go fast not go uh not be the most optimal and maybe the blockchain will help us optimize the distributed energy resource trading yeah. in the future but right now we, we kind of just need to go fast and deploy a lot of 
uh, technology. Yeah. I was curious. One of the interesting areas are the different ways. So there's this shared ledger concept, and you touched on that a little bit. It's it's instead of relying on a third party to keep a ledger of you know different schedules. Let's say for like Odie, you have a it's a shared third. It's a just a shared ledger where we all can make. Uh, different additions to the ledger and subtractions from the ledger using different proofs. So there's a proof of stake methodology. There's a proof of work methodology. And then there's this concept of like, uh, just, uh, what's the other one? Like a permissions based blockchain where you have to be, have permissions to access it. One of the things I've learned in my research is the proof of work is the things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah. Which use a lot of energy. Yeah. And the proof of stake does not use as much energy. NBA Top Shot, the NFTs I just opened, and I got a Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, NFT right here. Bam, he dunked on nice. something. It was great. Very good. MVP. Yep. It may have been a preseason dunk. I'm a little curious. I don't know how I got that one, but it's good. <laughs> anyway, uh, they are using the proof of stake methodology not the proof of work methodology. So me opening these NFTs did not just cost, uh, consume the amount of energy for like powering a home for a month. It was not that is, high energy usage. Is that how much energy the other methodologies use? I think Bitcoin is up to, if you're transferring a Bitcoin, it actually uses about 1600 kilowatt hours to, to enable that transfer of a Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin is, you know, $20,000. I actually don't know where it's at right now, but it's because it takes so much energy to transfer. It's, it's a proof of work concept. That's the concept it's built on. So is the proof of work concept as secure? Like what's the trade-off for the less energy? Uh, I don't think there's any less security or uh, anything like that. Uh, I think the proof of work is, it's just a different algorithm. And it was an earlier algorithm. And I think maybe the proof of stake Hopefully we'll replace it because it's more efficient. We like efficiency here in yeah. uh, the energy world. So I, uh, so I just, I just demonstrated some nifty little NFTs of moments from Top Shot. I'm curious if I were to make a public power underground NFT. First of all, should I? And if I do, what moment from Public Power Underground should I use? I my favorite public power underground moments are the tantrums over daylight savings. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is it just because we did the seasonal time change uh last weekend and you're it's fresh on your mind or Oh is no, that that's really always it's I think about it constantly. Like at like you know cuz obviously it comes up like we're we're counting hours in the years in this industry, right? And so it comes up all the time. Every time I'm trying to reconfigure some sort of numbers or try to figure out you know just trying to figure anything out like that, I have to stop and think about it. And then it's just it's it's annoying. It's ridiculous. When, well, when you have kids and dogs, it's kids and just, dogs, it doesn't it's work. Painful. It's like, why are it's, you changing the clocks, mom and dad? Why? Yeah. There's no, I, I can, why am I have to wake up earlier? Why are you putting me to bed later? I just want to yeah. go to my routine. Anyway, I agree. Exactly. We're going to be great friends. We're going to be great. Yeah. Friends. Okay. <laughs> like the John Francisco, he was one of the early like questions when the, in the slumming with the underground, where we were talking about seasonal time change. That was a good oh, moment. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a good moment. Uh, he just agreed with me, which is exactly what I want from people. Uh, when we talk about seasonal time change. Yeah, I'm not going to push back on this. I mean, no. I could diatribe about it for a long time, but I <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's frustrating and it makes no sense. 
Well, thank you for coming. Thanks to you for being our special research specialist. You like that title? We can workshop it if you want a different title. I like special. Wait, say it again. Special research specialist. See, I'm bookended by special. I'll keep it. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. what, you, what was it? What's Megan? Unicorns and, and yeah. cookies? Rainbows and unicorns. Rainbows and unicorns. And you're just <laughs> bookended by special. That's great. I'm just special all ways around. I'm blockchain special. Blockchain special. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Very much fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to you. Please come back. Thank you, Paul. Now back to the underground for news. The results of a BPA transmission study have exposed the limitations of the regional grid and may be an early warning sign that the 2030 clean energy goals in Washington and Oregon could be difficult to reach without a significant investment in the regional transmission system. BPA's 2021 cluster study report attracted 116 transmission service requests associated with 5,842 megawatts of mostly wind and solar projects, primarily located east of the Cascade Range. To accommodate these requests, Bonneville concluded that it would need to invest $845 million to upgrade its network, with 88% of that capital, $745 million, going toward upgrading a single transmission line. Bonneville officials say the $845 million price tag is only a snapshot of what would be needed today if the projects in the study reach commercial operation. The bulk of the investment, $745 million in upgrades to the Raver-Paul transmission line, which runs between Olympia and Centralia in Washington, would be needed only if or when several thermal plants along the Interstate 5 corridor are taken offline, as called for by Washington's Clean Energy Transformation. Transformation Act. For more information, Steve's, see Steve Ernst's article in clearing up at newsdata.com. Okay. Uh, Luigi? Is there, oh, I, I have, have one oh, yeah, comment. No, go is ahead. there any, any insight into why a transmission line from Olympia to Centralia, which is a relatively short distance, is $745 million? That seems like a large number. I mean, not me. insight from me. Yeah, I'm sure many people have insights, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Dan has any thoughts on that or. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I I don't recall if the article addresses that uh, directly. I mean, I know there's a lot of congestion issue along I-5 already. Um, that's a less congested area. It's not like you're trying to go through the Portland you know, Metroplex or whatever, or Seattle. I don't know. It's, uh, I'm going to call BPA. There you though. go. Dan is on it. Like, <laughs> stay tuned in yeah. a future episode. That's right. We we'll bring Dan back. Question. More reporting on this article. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Luigi, hit that uh, typewriter clip, and then uh, we're on to the next story. All right. I think that's me. Uh, so, as recently reported by my colleague Abigail Sawyer in California Energy Markets, uh, the proposed merger between New Mexico's biggest utility, public service company, and Avangrid got a, a dealt, was dealt a severe setback this month uh, when a hearing examiner told regulators to deny the deal. Hearing examiner Ashley Schanauer works for the New Mexico Public Regulation, Regulation Commission, and he told the regulators that the agreements had so many amendments layered on top of it that there's not even an actual agreement to approve anymore. Avangrid's parent company, global energy giant Iberdrola, wants to buy the utility public service company and its parent company, PNM Resources. Uh, and Shanauer detailed in his 446-page decision, detailed in, in depth, um, how the deal benefits Avangrid, but not so much New Mexico utility customers. 
So the deal would give Avangrid a strategic opening to sell non-utility services into the Southwest, uh, which is an, a market an opportunity that Avangrid and Iberdrola executives clearly are very interested in, because according to Shanauer's decision, they're offering to buy PNM resources uh, for at least $2 billion more than its book value. Uh, so for all of his criticism of the deal, though, Shanauer's decision does include a path forward for the merger if the deal is modified. Uh, some of the changes include eliminating more than $21 million in customer rearages and freezing customer rates until December 2022. So if you want to read more about this story and also check back in for updates, uh, follow my colleague Abigail Sawyer at California Energy Markets at newsdata.com. And thanks to Ian for summarizing the news. Okay. Uh, Brian, you're up next. So Luigi hit the typewriter and we'll move on to the next one. Nuclear energy is having a moment. At COP26, the 26th Annual United Nations Climate Change Conference, or Conference of Parties 26, the United States and Romania announced a partnership where NuScale, a small modular reactor startup uh, our friends from UAMPS are familiar with, will install five SMRs into retired coal plants in Romania. The advancement of advanced nuclear projects isn't limited to COP26 either. Nuclear generation has been a key component of decarbonation plans for the U.S., China, and the U.K. Our our regular listeners will be familiar with advanced nuclear funding from the Department of Energy's Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. Energy Northwest announced new partnerships with Grant County PUD and X-Energy in April 2021 and TerraPower GE Hitachi in October 2020. And also of note is the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill that recently made it through Congress includes $8.47 billion for existing nuclear plants. For more, you can find an excellent exposition of the state of nuclear power in the Atlantic. We found the coverage thanks to the Energy News Digest. Uh, and to like loop this in, because I just got this update on my phone, that the uh, infrastructure bill was just officially signed uh, by the president. So finally like, wrapped that up, uh, which is very exciting. I don't know if Paul can like put an th- exciting thing on the on the screen as I'm talking about it, but finally signed. We talked about it last week, possibly being signed by last week's uh, episode coming out, but uh, we were just one uh, production part away. So good thing on our timing, guys. Uh, Okay. uh, So we've got to do a mental find and replace on all the remaining stories to remove. Yeah. I don't think there's too too many more, but uh, yes. Well, or we can just say uh, it happened uh, during production or during this filming. So uh, please forgive us if we misspeak within the next 20 minutes of filming. There you go, Ian. I got you covered. Uh, Okay. Uh, uh, Luigi hit the typewriter, and then we're on to the next story. Postponing the retirement of the nuclear Diablo Canyon power plant could help California wean itself off natural gas and improve reliability on the state's shaky grid, energy experts said in a report issued November 2nd. If Diablo can't... Diablo Canyon's life is extended 10 years beyond its planned retirement date of 2025. The plant could decrease California's reliance on natural gas-fired generation by about 10.2 terawatt hours per year, researchers from Stanford and MIT said in the report. The plant could also provide zero-carbon firm electric capacity that would be especially valuable during electric reliability events, such as those that occurred in August 2020, when the absence of Diablo Canyon 
would have tripled the state's electricity shortage from one gigawatt to more than three gigawatts, the report says. The California PUC has kept Diablo's retirement on course for 2025 since approving a settlement in January 2018. During settlement negotiations, the CPUC found that renewing the plant's licenses within the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission would not be cost-effective, that retiring the plant would not hurt electric reliability, and that its retirement would not result in a clear change in greenhouse gas emissions. However, last month, the CPUC issued a report that found California might need to increase natural gas capacity in the coming years to meet demand. In April, the California ISO urged the CPUC to procure 10 gigawatts of additional capacity within the next few years to make up for the retirement of Diablo Canyon. Reducing California's reliance on natural gas is a key reason to consider postponing Diablo Canyon's retirement. The power plant could reduce California's natural gas usage by more than the output of the state's once through cooling and natural gas peaking plants, according to the report. If Diablo Canyon is kept through 2035, the state could save about $2.6 billion in power system costs. If it is kept on through 2045, the state could save up to $21 billion, the report says. Researchers also determined that postponing Diablo's retirement could save about 90,000 acres of land from development. The state could avoid a need to add about 3.4 gigawatts of solar generation capacity and about 2.7 gigawatts of energy storage capacity if the nuclear plant is kept online, the report says. For more information, check out the article in Clearing Up by David Kraus. Good job, Ian. Uh, I wrote that one or summarized it, and it was a long one. So <laughs> I, I apologize for the length, but I will say uh, do go check out the uh, <laughs> article online because I, as much as Ian uh, reported. I, I didn't even get it all. So uh, there's more details in there uh, in this report that I wonder if it uh, like rivals the 446 page one that we read earlier or talked about earlier. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, there's a lot of details in there about uh, the benefits of extending that and keeping it around for a while. So uh, definitely do check that out. I'm really wondering, like, yeah, it's nice. It's a nice idea saying, oh, look how much better it would be if we kept Diablo Canyon online. But if it's planned for retirement in 2025 and they haven't started the FERC relicensing, what does that take for a nuclear plant like 30 years? <laughs> give, or, give or take a couple? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, okay. Uh, Luigi, uh, get the typewriter. And then, uh, Dan, we're back to you. Okay. Uh, so... Emerald PUD general manager and one of my favorite people to talk to, Scott Coe, is sadly for us, uh, fortunately for him, retiring at the end of the year. So the underground special correspondent, Matt Tronig, and creative director, Paul Dockery, collaborated uh, on a fun interview for, with Scott to see if the wisdom of age hadn't been wasted on him. Uh, so for friends of the underground who know Scott... You won't be surprised to find out that the interview ran a little long. And by that, I mean way past the time that we have for it. Uh, um, so instead, uh, what we've got today is a short preview of the conversation, and we'll have the full interview. Uh, we'll publish separately next week. So sign up on Substack, subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Messenger Pigeon to make sure you get the full video when it publishes. Scott Coe, welcome to Public Power Underground. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. 
We're going to finish up with some lightning round questions, then Paul's going to start. Uh... Okay. When's the last time you used pivot tables or VLOOKUPs in Excel? Okay. What's Excel? Yeah, exactly. Yes, I knew it. it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. That's the right answer. Is that one of those new things like from uh, from the Alphabet company, Google people? What? Who does? It's an, what's app. an, ex- it's an app. It's an app. It's, it's an, an app. app. Okay. Next. Yeah. Pinky ring. You still wear your great uncle's pinky ring and you still bang it on the table when you need to get people's attention? Uh, no, you know, I, uh, I quit right ri- I'm sorry, Smokey. You were when over the when did you realize that outlets were the future of electric vehicle public charging programs? Excellent question. It was when I bought an EV three years ago, and I got so frustrated. I got so frustrated with the DC fast chargers in Portland. I started using my 120 in my garage in Portland to plug in until I finally got wired for a level two. But yeah, I used I used my level one for quite a while. That's the right answer. How many, uh, hey, how many times are you fired from your current position? Oh, okay. okay. I'll retract the question. Oh, we got so plenty of time. Take all the time you want on outlets as electric vehicle public charging infrastructure. All the time you want, Scott. Please keep going. Keep I'm going to add something to the EV thing. Um, yeah, we have, we're gonna, we'll turn it off. They're not on the clock anymore. You can take as much time as you want. We have 80 employees at Emerald, and we have 15 that drive EVs. And I would, I would uh, cool. speculate that we may have the highest percentage of the workforce driving an EV of any place. And the big game changer, the, you know, the, 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 the thing that doesn't work for EVs is that whole charging infrastructure that isn't where we needed to be yet. But one of the things we did was put in 10 chargers here at work. We're out there putting in chargers in all of our high schools in our service territory. And after we do that, we're going to start um, doing a bidding war with some businesses to put in um, level two charging at some uh, businesses that bid in and we will pay for it. But they got to tell us the compelling reason why we should put it at their business because we have limited funds. We're not going to do it at every business. They'll have to prove to us why it's a good business bet for us to put it at their business. But EV infrastructure charging needs to get much better for us to move the needle on EV ownership. If you're just driving around town, you really can do it on your outlet. You really can. I did it uh, in Portland. But uh, I if, still you do, do if, it. You're, if you're doing uh, up and down I-5 to Portland from Eugene like I do, you do need level two. And once you get that established, you really, unless you're going on a long trip, you don't need a DC. I rarely use a DC fast charge. Uh, but again, we put in, in infrastructure here at work, and that was when people started buying EVs here at work. And like I said, 15 out of 80, I suspect we probably have the highest percentage of people commuting in EVs. Uh, Matt, how many yeah. people, Matt, how many people over at eWeb have an EV? You know, I, I know where the spreadsheet is that would allow me to answer the question. Off the top of my head, I'm not entirely certain. I can think of five, uh, and I have to imagine there's more than that, um, but I do not know the number. So you, you know might, what the, the you, might, might, you know that eWeb might be at one percent. We are at almost twenty percect. Yeah, we're only at fourteen percent here at Classic and IPUD. And that would be uh, you. We'll ask the questions here, you Scott. You are the okay? We'll ask the questions. Person, no, there's like four others. There's five of us. It's not. It's not just me. Okay. I, it's not just me. Okay. You know the terrible thing that eWeb does, and I assume Frank's going to listen to this. So now he's going to hear it from me too. They give away the charging for free. You know the the thing we shouldn't do is give away the thing we sell for free. That's my perspective. That's my perspective. You don't give it away for free, do you, Scott? You do, don't you? Oh, I can tell. Not a chance. Not a chance. Look in your eyes. Okay. Nope. In fact, I'll tell you what the the uh, 
the employee parking lot charging uh, was on a credit card thing, and we just went to flat rate because we had too many problems with that. So when flat we went rate. to the I flat rate, our, our person in charge of that sends me an email, and I'm I'm behind I'm back where we park all our rigs, and I have a charger at my GM parking spot next to our pool cars that are EVs, and I pay a flat fee, and we just calculated what's the appropriate, and so I pay 130 bucks a year. Well, so then the board approved a new flat rate for the other chargers and for out at the um, high schools and the other EV infrastructure, and it's $10 a month. Well, you know, you always need to be questioning. Before you ask a question, make sure you know what the answer is. It's upstairs, sends me an email and says, hey, you need to start paying for your EV charging down there at your custom GM parking spot. And I said to him, go to hell. <laughs> And he replies back, hey, don't be such a cheap ass. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm paying more than the new approved rate, and I want a refund. And he says, oh, that's going to look real good on the next uh, board agenda. Uh, GM wants a $10 refund for his 12 months of EV charging. And I said, I want the 10 bucks, buddy. I, I really like this employee you have, and you are obviously fostering a very good culture of accountability at Emerald PUD. Yeah. Uh, Kyle is inheriting a very accountable organization. That's great. Ours is $23 a month, and I want to I push you on one thing, Scott. You aren't recovering your demand, and you need to recover your demand. I'm telling you, you got to recover your demand on EV charging. It needs to be a separate component of your bill because the one thing – that is the most valuable when it comes to EV charging is how fast it happens. And if you don't put a price to it, you are under recovering. It's sending the wrong price signal. We believe in supporting the expansion of EV adoption, and we're afraid that will slow it down. We think any utility that's short-sighted should just get out of the business. That is absolute. I can't curse, but uh, let's beep. Beep. Hey, hey. <laughs> We, we set our rates. It's very competitive. We don't establish, we don't do a monthly demand charge for all of this. It's a per chart, per instance demand charge. And it's levelized over uh, the whole month. And we assume it's a full adoption rate. These are very compelling rates. $20 a month. You're telling me you won't charge your EV for $20 a month? It's a very compelling $23 rate. $23 a month. 20, it's like probably 27 at this point. I do increase the rates uh, because we want to make sure that we are recovering the full cost. Because I tell you what, one thing in rural America, you do not want the narrative that you're subsidizing EV charging. I agree, uh, I agree with you. You don't want that yep. out there. Yep, I agree with you. Subsidies are and, bad. Yep, and we are not. It's a very compelling rate that is not subsidized by our other customers. Okay, should we go back on the clock, sure. Matt? I think you're Certainly tired of glad we covered that. Thanks, thanks again for joining us. Uh, General Manager Co. You won't be hearing that for much longer. Um, best of luck as you ride off into the sunset. My, my condolences to Todd. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think, uh, I think with that, we'll, we'll hand it back to the underground for more news. The rest of the interview will be published next week, like Dan said. It includes some bleeps and a series of lightning round questions that we think you'll enjoy. Uh, and I am also a big Scott Co. fan, uh, so I look forward to hearing the rest of it. Uh, one of my favorite things about him, which always makes me feel very uh, inadequate, is that he has run like over 200 marathons, I think, uh, which I am always just uh, in awe of that as someone who does not like running. <laughs> so uh, I think he just ran the New York Marathon know, like I've... two weeks ago. Yeah. He doesn't do the small ball ones. <laughs> I've never... I've never felt so unimpressed with hearing myself say, oh, yeah, I did three marathons. <laughs>
That's <laughs> <laughs> when <laughs> I did three. Oh, that's fun. He's like, I did that last month. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> well, up next is the evolving segment where we go from news, go over news stories that we could not talk about on Public Power desk, Desktop. Uh, this week, we're going to try out the title Phase to Phase, uh, but we're still shopping it. So please do let us know if you have some ideas. Um, but before we do, let's take a short break uh, to get our word, from, get a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by the returning sponsor, Efficiency Services Group. That must mean they like our vibe, and that means they're electric utility enthusiasts like us, and we appreciate their help in making this show possible. ESG specializes in working with electric utilities to develop real solutions to meet their specific needs. Klatsk and IPUD uses ESG for our energy efficiency needs, so if you want to know more, let me know or visit efficiencyservicesgroup.com. That's efficiencyservicesgroup.com. They're a returning sponsor of Public Power Underground, and they're electric utility enthusiasts like us. Thanks, Brian. Are you ready for face-to-face? As ready as I'll ever <laughs> As ready as I'll ever do. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so this is face-to-face where we TLDR our way through some news leads that we couldn't get through at Public Power Desktop. Uh, I'm Karen Heim, and I'm going from phase-to-phase this week. Uh, in Northwest Fish Topics, preliminary estimates of survival of wild juvenile salmon and steelhead from the Snake River were so low this year that despite the high degree of uncertainty in the estimates, fish managers should be t- taking the potential or talking of potential causes of uh, mortality. And NOAA Fisheries Representative Claire McGrath told fellow members of the Columbia River Technical Management Team on November 3rd. And as the number of fish passing Bonneville Dam begins to dwindle for the year, salmon managers in the region are reporting that, as forecasted, the Columbia Basin Steelhead run was the worst on record. In other news from the region, Idaho Power has seen a surge in inquiries from cryptocurrency miners so big that it threatens to overwhelm the company's grid during the summer peak, according to the utility. To avoid that, Idaho Power asked the Idaho PUC to approve a new customer class for Bitcoin miners and other energy-hungry customers in uh, speculative industries. The proposed rate schedule for the utility's November 4th application includes the ability to interrupt service, higher demand charges, and capacity charges. And recent rains across the western U.S. have been welcome, and the accumulated precipitation is improving conditions in some areas. But underlying conditions created by persistent dryness are nowhere near being (laughs) ameliorated. Over, I don't know, I was just going to put a new word in there. (laughs) And the California (laughs) Energy Commission is proposing $19.5 million in grants to study how the batteries of electric vehicles parked at homes and commercial buildings can provide backup power during grid outages. Next, from the muddy banks of the Potomac, electric industry groups hailed the newly passed $1 trillion infrastructure legislation, pointing to billions of dollars in funding to upgrade the grid, electrify transportation, and develop technologies for decarbonizing the electric power system. Western lawmakers said the bill, H.R. 3684, includes funding for removing fish blocking culverts, restoring Pacific Coast salmon, reducing wildfire risks, and boosting drought relief. And BPA will gain an additional $10 billion of borrowing authority, increasing it from $7.7 billion to $17.7 billion under the provision of the infrastructure bill just uh, mentioned and just signed, as we just spoke about. And that's as much of fault as we can carry this week, so we'll go back to the episode to close it out. Okay, uh, that's all the news we're covering this week. Send us any news, questions, opinions, corrections to Paul on Twitter, at a power manager, or if you're a friend of the underground, just send any of us a note. Thanks for joining us, Dan. It was great to have you back. Uh, Thanks, Luigi. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. And uh, it's great to have all of you. I hope you all feel valued and appreciated. 
I have a new word to, to look up on the dictionary now after that. So. <laughs> so, that word was actually in the article. Oh, I, I was going to assume that Ian was just like, yeah, I'm going to just drop this one here. <laughs> I have no idea if I pronounced it anywhere close to what it was supposed to be. I just said it really fast. You did it. There so you go. Just breeze know. through it. Yeah. Just breeze through yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Uh, on our next regular episode, will be or our next regular episode will be recorded on November 29th and published on December 2nd. To make sure you don't miss it or the bonus episode with the rest of the interview from Scott Co, you can sign up for our unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways you can consume this fascinating content at content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a whole lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Your power's the subject of public power news. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskan IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klatskan IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It is written and directed by Klatskanai PUD's power department led by Paul Dockery. And it's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources led by associate producer, Sarah Wooten. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground, for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Rivers add water to you. Yakima, snake, and the clicker.